Well, years ago, some friends of ours and and our family were at a friend of ours house that had a pool and we were all swimming and hanging out, having a good time, cooking out all of our kids who were much younger at at this point. This was years ago. They're, they're swimming in the pool. They're having a good time. We're on a patio. We're cooking out. We're eating. We're having a good time while they're swimming and going down this inflatable slide into the pool. This slide was kind of hooked to the side and the kids were kind of jumping on it, you know, and doing tricks down it into the pool. Well, well, all of a sudden, while we're kind of sitting there chatting, uh, one of my friends who, who, who owned the house, the pool, it's his pool, he runs, he jumps over this fence because there were small children there uh, in their neighborhood and at their house, they had a fence that went around their pool. And so he jumps over the fence and jumps into the pool with all of his clothes on. We, we had no idea what was happening. We're like, what is going on? Like, we're kind of panicked in this moment because we, we, we didn't know what was happening. He just ran. He didn't say anything. He just ran from our conversation, jumped over the fence, and jumped into the middle of the pool. It was a nice, like, we're in track season. I'm going to be honest. It was a good long jump, all right? It was a good long jump from the side of that pool into it. It had some distance, like, where he landed in the pool. The slide had come off the side of the pool and he jumped into the middle of the pool. He grabbed that slide and he picked it up and his daughter was underneath there drowning. None of us saw it. We we were all kind of chatting it up, having a good time, but because he owned the pool and because all these kids are swimming in his pool, he was a little bit more cognizant, you know, of what was going on. He was a lot more vigilant. He was watching to make sure because it was his pool, it was his house and He was more responsible than the rest of us, I guess, in that moment. And he was vigilantly watching the pool to make sure that that everything was going right. Because what what he knew as the pool owner is that just one mistake, right? Just, Just one fall, one mistake, and a kid could tragically drown in his pool. And so he was vigilantly watching the pool. He knew the dangers. And so while the rest of us were just kind of chilling, eating our cheeseburger... He's vigilantly watching this pool to make sure the kids are fine, to make sure everyone knows how to swim, and to make sure nothing tragic happens. My friend knew that at any moment, any of those kids, or any one of us, when we're swimming or out at the lake, are one step away from something tragic happening. And so he was, he was vigilantly watching that pool. And listen, the same thing is true in your spiritual life. And my, we must be vigilant. We must be on guard watching our faith, our doctrine, which is what we believe, watching our, our lives that we're obeying the word of God so that we don't drown. And here's why. Because just like at that pool, you're one step away from drowning. The same is true spiritually. We have an enemy, the devil, who wants to steal, kill, and destroy. He wants to take you out. He wants to drown you. Your, your apathy to spiritual things can, can drown you, can sink you. The lust of your flesh can drown you. The idols in your heart can drown you. Your own sin, selfishness, comfort, lies that we've bought into that this culture has preached to us can drown you. Bitterness because of unforgiveness, can sink you. It can drown you. False doctrine can sink you, can shipwreck your faith. Today, Jesus is going to warn us that all, the, all these things can, can drown us. And so he's going to give us some life jackets, if you will, so, so that we don't sink, so that we don't drown, but that we swim and we thrive in our faith. We're in the middle of a series where we're going verse by verse to the gospel of Luke. So if you got your Bible, you can turn to Luke chapter 17. 
Luke chapter 17, we're going verse by verse, chapter by chapter through the gospel of Luke. And we're inviting you to study the gospel of Luke here with us, to dive in in these moments that we have. And if you've missed, go on our podcast, go on our app, go on our website and get caught up because we want to study the scripture in context. And so it's helpful if you know where we've been and you, you're, you're caught up. And so if you're not, I want to challenge you to go get caught up in our study of Luke. We're challenging you to study the gospel of Luke this week with your city group. We want everyone in our church in a city group, a small group Bible study where they're studying the word together and they're praying together and they can encourage one another and they can be there for one another. This week, we, we're challenging you to study the gospel of Luke through our daily devotionals, Monday through Friday into the Bible study tab on our app. We're gonna break down these same verses. And then finally, we're challenging you to study the gospel of Luke with your family using the table talk. That's a Bible study resource for families under the Bible study tab on our app as well, because your kids and our students are going to be studying these same verses and ideas this morning in an age appropriate way. And so the table talk allows a family to kind of get together and discuss what God is teaching them. Here, here, here's our hope. Here's our hope in studying the gospel of Luke is that you get to know Jesus, like, like the full counsel of Jesus. And when I say that, I'm saying that as opposed to liberal Jesus, conservative Jesus, your Jesus. There's no such thing as a your Jesus or a my Jesus. There's just Jesus. And so in our study of the gospel of Luke, we're trying to get to know the real Jesus, the full counsel of Jesus and who he is and, and what he had to say. And, and as, we, as we do that, Paul said, getting to know Jesus is better than anything else. In fact, he said in Philippians 3 that everything else, everything else in this life, every other pursuit in this world, it doesn't even compare. It doesn't even hold a candle to getting to know Jesus. Paul said getting to know Jesus is better than anything else. And that's, that's my prayer as we study the gospel of Luke, is that you fall in love with Jesus and that your heart is transformed into a follower of Jesus that loves Jesus and that could say right along with Paul, man, knowing Jesus and growing in Jesus, there's nothing better than that. Paul was right. And that you get to know that and experience that yourself. So we study the gospel of Luke. We study the scripture here verse by verse because we just believe that preaching that way and studying the scripture that way as a church family is going to be more effective at producing healthier disciples of Jesus, deeper disciples of Jesus, more effective, more faithful, more steadfast, more generous disciples of Jesus that studying the scripture verse by verse will, will, will bring about, will, will transform marriages, that marriages will be richer than ever, that kids will know what they believe and why they believe it. And can I just be honest with you for a second? So something that I've kind of learned and say, I just want to be real with you for just a minute. Like what, I, what I've learned over the past few years is we've studied the scripture verse by verse. We started with Daniel, we're at Colossians, and now we're doing the gospel of Luke. Here's something that I've realized, and it's a little scary, that when you study the scripture verse by verse, you talk about things that you wouldn't talk about in topical series. I mean, let's get real. Who's going to talk about hell like we did last week in a topical series? Not many people are like, you know what I think we should talk about um, in this topical series? We should do a topical series on hell. Most people just aren't going to do that. But when you study the scripture verse by verse, you're forced to cover things and to deal with things that you wouldn't necessarily do otherwise. And so what I've noticed, and it's a little scary in 20 years of ministry and preaching is that, and I'm just confessing to you, I'm saying different things and we're talking about different things and I'm preaching on different things than I did probably in the previous 17 years of ministry because we're studying the scripture verse by verse. It forces you to do that. 
You're, you're going to hear things as you study the scripture verse by verse that you're not going to hear in topical preaching, that you're not going to hear in that devotional book that you bought at that Christian bookstore, that you're not going to hear in that Christian book that you bought at that Christian bookstore. Like you're, you're just not going to cover the full counsel of the word of God. And I know that because I've bought all of those things and I've done almost all of them. You talk about, you study, you, you dive into things that you wouldn't do otherwise when you study the scripture verse by verse. When you do topical series and books and devotionals and things like that, there's nothing wrong with those things in and of themselves. But here's what I have noticed. They produce a much more self-centered faith. And when you study the gospel, when you study the scripture verse by verse, it produces a much more Godward, God-centered, Christ-centered kind of faith. It kind of takes the eyes off of yourself and it puts it on Jesus where they belong. So that's just me being real and kind of honest with you for a second about some things I've learned over the past few years of studying the scripture this way. So in light of that, turn with me, Luke chapter 17, we're going to start in verse one today. Kayla Torres is going to come and read for us. Would you stand in honor of the word of the Lord? And as you stand, I want to remind you what David said in Psalm 19 about the word of God. He said, the instructions of the Lord are perfect, reviving the soul. And so as we dive into the word this morning, God's word is perfect and it can revive your soul if you will engage and not sit back and watch like this is theater. But if you engage, you'll find the word of God is perfect and it's reviving my heart and it's reviving my soul. Jesus said his words would never pass away, that we would always have his words. And so what we read this morning, it is the word of the Lord because Jesus said we would always have his words. Kayla, would you read for us? Good morning, City Fam. My name is Kayla Torres. I'm a member here at the city. I've got two kids, Emerson and Jeremiah, and they're part of our city kids. Um, I also volunteer with our prayer team and at 930 in the intercession room. Um, and I also lead a city group for women on Thursday nights. So let's read. Luke 17. One day, Jesus said to his disciples, there will always be temptations to sin, but what sorrow awaits the person who does the tempting? It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone hung around your neck than to cause one of these little ones to fall into sin. So watch yourselves. If another believer sins, rebuke that person. Then, if there is repentance, forgive. Even if that person wrongs you seven times a day and each time turns again and asks forgiveness, you must forgive. The apostles said to the Lord, show us how to increase our faith. The Lord answered, if you had faith, even as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mulberry tree, may you be uprooted and be planted in the sea, and it would obey you. When a servant comes in from plowing or taking care of the sheep, does his master say, come in and eat with me? No, he says, prepare my meal, put on your apron, and serve me while I eat, then you can eat later. And does the master thank the servant for doing what he was told to do? Of course not. In the same way, when you obey me, you should say, we are unworthy servants who have simply done our duty. Thank you, Kayla. You may be seated. So Jesus says temptation to sin is coming. Temptation to sin is going to sink you. It's going to drown you. Jesus is going to say false teachers abound and they're going to try to sink you and you're going to drown through their false teaching. Jesus says bitterness because of unforgiveness. It's going to, it's going to sink you. So, 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 so what do we do? 
How do we swim? How do we thrive in our faith when our flesh is going to lead us into sin? When, when false teachers and teaching abound, when bitterness wants to sink us, how, how, do we, how do we swim? How do we thrive in our faith? Three life jackets this morning that, that we find here in Luke chapter 17. Three life jackets to help you thrive in your faith, to grow in your faith so that you don't sink so that you don't drown through sin, false teaching, and pride, unforgiveness. Number one, life jacket number one is orthodoxy. This is a big kind of Christian theological word that means this. Here's the definition of orthodoxy. It's believing rightly. Just simply put, it's believing rightly. It's believing the right things about God. And so in, inherent in that life jacket is that you can believe wrong things about God. Orthodoxy is believing rightly, so, so unorthodox would be believing wrongly about God. Jesus here warns against those who would tempt people and lead them astray into sin through false teaching. And let's just think about this with me for a second. Like how arrogant and stupid of us to think or of someone to think that we could guess or hypothesize or make up things about God when God has revealed himself to us through his word and ultimately through his son, Jesus. There's nothing to guess, folks. There, there's nothing to wonder that there's nothing to come up with or hypothesize about when it comes, when it comes to God. God has revealed himself to us. He's made himself known to us in his word and and ultimately through his son, Jesus. So for there to be a God, just, just think with me here for a second. For there to be a God, that means that he will tell you things that you don't want to be true, that, that don't sound good to you. I mean, think about last week, right? That, that doesn't sound good to me. I, I'd rather the doctrine of hell not be true. Like I would rather that, like that would feel a lot better to me, but because there's a God, I don't get to make up Theology, I don't get to make up doctrine. I don't get to make up or hypothesize or guess about who God is and what he's like and, and what he does and why he does it. Like he's, he's revealed those things to us. So, so, so because there's a God, it means that he's going to disagree with me sometimes. And whenever there's a disagreement between me and God, I'm always wrong. Whenever you disagree with God and how he's revealed himself to us in his word or through his son, Jesus, when you disagree with God, you are always wrong. You are never right when you disagree with God. If there's a God, it means there's going to be some things that don't sound righteous, that don't sound true to us, but that are true because he is God. And so let me put it this way. Like if your God, lowercase g, if your God never disagrees with you, you don't have a God. You've put yourself in the place of God. If your God always agrees with you and whatever you think, you don't have God, you've got yourself. You've put yourself in the place of God. That's called idolatry. Paul said in Romans one, we think up foolish thoughts about who God is and what he's like. Foolish thoughts. And so if your God, lowercase g, never disagrees with you on anything, you don't have an uppercase g God. You've got yourself. You've put yourself in the place of God. Orthodoxy is believing rightly about God. And Jesus is here warning us. There are going to be some people that come, false teachers that are going to come, and they will shipwreck your faith if you buy in to what they're saying. Paul would tell Timothy this in 1 Timothy chapter 4. Now, the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last times, many, or some rather, will turn away from the true faith. That means there's a 
a wrong faith. There, there, there's a wrong way of faith and there's a right way of faith. And so Paul's warning Timothy, hey, some people are gonna come and they're gonna, they're gonna turn away from the true faith. They will follow, watch this, deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. That, that, that means that unorthodox beliefs, believing wrongly about God, is not just your best guess or your opinion, it's actually demonic. That false teaching comes from a demonic source to lead us away from the true faith. So in light of that, Paul tells Timothy kind of makes sense what comes next in verse 16. So keep a close watch on how you live. We're going to get there here in just a second. And on your teaching, some translations say on your doctrine, watch your doctrine, what you believe about God, watch it very closely. You got to be vigilant. Like my friend watching that pool, you got to watch your doctrine closely. Stay true to what is right for the sake of your own salvation and the salvation of others who hear you. Paul is saying, listen, there's a lot on the line here. Your own salvation, other people's salvation. So because there's so much on the line of eternal significance, think last week, right? Because there's so much on the line, Paul says to Timothy, you gotta watch your doctrine closely. You gotta stay vigilant because false teaching, false doc, wrong doctrine will lead you astray. It will, it will sink you. Paul would tell Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, he says, says, says this, so, so I solemnly urge you in the presence of God in Christ Jesus, who will someday judge the living and the dead when he comes to set up his kingdom. Here's the urge. Here's the challenge. Preach the word of God. And so what we've done here at the city is we just kind of leaned into that. We're just erring on the side of, we're just going to preach the word. Like Word for word, verse by verse, we're preaching the word. Not man's best creative, like opinions on what we think you need to hear. No, no, we're just gonna preach the word. We're gonna preach the word of God. Be prepared, Paul says, whether the time is favorable or not. So, so preach the word, whether people like it or not. Preach the word, whether the culture receives it or not, whether it's popular or not. You, you gotta preach the word and stay true to right doctrine, to orthodoxy, regardless of the cost. He says this, this, is gonna, this isn't gonna sit too well, I promise you, watch what he says. Patiently correct, rebuke, yuck, that doesn't sound good, right? Correct, rebuke, and encourage people with good teaching. Some translations say with sound doctrine, with right doctrine. So you're going to correct people with wrong doctrine. You're going to rebuke people with wrong doctrine. We'll talk more about that word here. And just It's not exactly as harsh and as mean as it sounds. It's like it's for your good. But, but he says you've got to correct, rebuke, encourage people with good doctrine, with sound doctrine, with good teaching. For a time is coming, watch this, when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They won't, they won't like it. It'll either be too boring or it won't sound good to them. And so here's what they're gonna do. They will follow their own desires, their own opinions, their own feelings, and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. That will encourage them and inspire them and make them feel better about themselves. They will say things that, that sound good to their, to their ears. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. These things aren't real or true, false doctrine, it's, it's not even real. 
They're myths. They're demonic myths leading you away from the true faith. They will reject the truth. They'll chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Paul says again, if you are committed and vigilant to, to have good sound doctrine, to believe rightly about God, it's gonna cost you. It's not gonna be popular. That you, you will end up suffering in some way if you hold closely to right doctrine that we find in the scripture. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry God has given you. Paul tells Titus, one of his other disciples, this in Titus chapter one, verse nine, that, uh, speaking about elders, he, he, tells, he tells Titus, hey, in, in all the churches, you gotta appoint elders, spiritually qualified leaders who can lead the church and, and teach and preach for the church. And he says this, Paul says this to Titus about these elders who should lead the church. He says this, that, that he must have a strong belief in the trustworthy message he was taught. That, that means that we don't come up with new truth we, we might say some things you haven't heard before. We might say some things like you haven't thought about it in that way, but it's, there's nothing new. I have nothing new to tell you. I can only tell you what's in the word of God. And so in that sense, there, there's nothing that's new to the Christian faith. I, I've got to be faithful and trustworthy to what we've been taught. Right, right doctrine is found in the word. So, so We've got a trustworthy message that was taught to us. And then he says this, then the elders will, will, will be able to encourage others with wholesome teaching and show those who oppose it where they are wrong. So, so some are going to have wrong doctrine. They're going to believe rightly about God. And so those who have right doctrine, who are studying the word, must oppose those and show people where they are wrong based on the word of God. Not their opinions, not their best guesses, but through the word, show someone where they are getting it wrong. Each week when I prepare to preach, it takes somewhere for about 20 to 25 hours each week. And I'm studying for the gospel of Luke. I have about 10 commentaries from people from different backgrounds to see what all kinds of different people are, are saying about this passage. I listen to three or four pastors that I trust that have preached through this gospel or, the, or this, these, this passage before and I see how do they handle it and what do they have to say. And, and these pastors are kind of from different experiences and, and backgrounds. I'm just trying to, 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 to figure out what, what, what is, what do ever, what are people, so what are the, what is a church saying about this passage? I'm reading articles. It, it's, it's half my week or, or, or more is just preparing to preach this passage. And then on Thursdays, almost every Thursday, we present that message to our staff so that they can speak into it and give feedback there. And, and the reason that we do all that and the reason I, I labor in that and that I spend so much time in that is that James says that I, people like me, teachers, are going to be judged more harshly. because we led the people of God. And so I will be judged more strictly than you. And so James says, not many should presume to be teachers because you will be judged more strictly, more, more harshly than, than others. Paul says that 
To, to preach means that we must correctly divide the word of truth, which means there's a wrong way to divide it. There's a wrong way to teach it. So, so we got to take painstaking hours and time and labor to make sure as we watch our doctrine closely each week that we are preaching sound doctrine, orthodoxy, believing rightly about God. That means there's a right way to believe and a wrong way to believe. And Jesus here is warning us about false teaching that, that leads someone astray. And he says this, it would be better for that person that, that's leading others astray through false teaching. He says this, it would be better for that person to have a millstone tied around their neck and for them to be thrown into the sea. That's the way a criminal was executed. A millstone is a giant rock that, that an animal, a donkey might be tied to that would go in a circle to like grind grain down. This was a giant stone. And, and Jesus is saying, man, tie a millstone around that false teacher's neck and throw them into the sea because they are good for nothing. They will shipwreck your faith. That's Jesus talking. Jesus, Paul, the apostles, they, they strongly warn against false teachers all throughout the New Testament and, 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 in the, and in the Gospels. Paul would say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 to the church at Corinth. You happily put up with, whatever, with what anyone ever tells you. You just put up with it. Paul's basically telling us you're not supposed to put up with what someone, which is what anyone tells you, with what, or with what you read or with what you hear. You, you, shouldn't, I'll, I sh you shouldn't be putting up with everything I tell you. You should be judging it according to the word. You should be actively studying the scripture and making sure that what we're saying is, is true. You, don't, you shouldn't trust me. You need to be studying the scripture. You don't just happily put up with whatever you hear and read. No, Paul says that you're happily putting up with whatever anyone tells you, even if they're preaching a different Jesus than the one we preached or a different kind of spirit than the one you received or a different kind of gospel than the one that you believe. John, the apostle said this in 1 John chapter four, dear friends, don't believe everyone who claims to speak by the spirit. Don't, don't believe just everyone that you hear and everything that you read. I'm telling you right now, our Christian bookstores will allow and will sell something just to get money from you. And it, it is absolute trash. You need to be studying the scripture. Don't believe, don't put up with what anyone just says to you. He, he says this, you must test them to see if the spirit they have comes from God for there are many false prophets in the world. John says we, we should have this leaning or this bent to everything that we hear and read in that Christian book or in that devotional. We should have this bent, not like passively just receiving it, but an active vigilance leaning, like erring on, like I'm discerning and I'm testing everything that I'm hearing. That's totally different than this, this passive just reception of just happily kind of receiving just whatever I hear and whatever I read because it feels good or sounds good. It must be true. No, John, John says, don't, don't, don't just believe everything you're told. You got to have this bent towards testing and discerning everything that you're told, everything that you, that, that you're reading. Paul warned against false teaching and teachers in nearly every letter that he wrote. And he even named names. In fact, in first Timothy chapter five, he tells Timothy rebuke false teachers publicly, name their names and rebuke them publicly. So here's what we're doing for the rest of our time together. I'm going to list off every false teacher and we're going to rebuke them publicly. I'm just kidding. We're not doing that. Some of you are like set up like, what? What's going on? Drama? Conflict? What? Huh? 
No, that's not what we're doing. But I am going to give you kind of a list here of some things that you can use, a filter that you can use to spot a false teacher or author or, or teaching. And here, here, here's the first thing. Here's kind of the first filter that you can use. There's going to be an air of secrecy to what that person is saying or writing about. And, and here, here's what I mean. They're going to talk about a secret knowledge or a secret experience that you can only get or know through them and their ministry. Secrecy. Paul said, the mystery has been revealed and it's Christ. The mystery is that Christ is the Messiah that was long awaited and prophesied that he was going to come and die and rise to life, conquering sin and death, and that he's going to return. And Paul says, that's the mystery. And the mystery has been revealed and it's Christ. A false teacher with their false teaching is going to promote some sort of secret knowledge or experience that you can only get through them and their ministry. Secondly, false teachers are going to err on prosperity. Prosperity. They're going to say that your suffering or sickness is because of a lack of faith, that it's God's will for you to always be healthy and wealthy. And then a lot of times they're going to want you to pay for them to bless you or to give you some sort of spiritual gift or to give you some sort of prophecy over your life. Listen, the, the, the normative thing in the New Testament is paying local leaders in a local church where there is trust and there's authority and there's accountability. Even Paul, who went from place to place, didn't accept pay very often because he didn't want to have the appearance of the false teaching grifters of his day that would go from city to city deceiving people. And when he did accept a gift... When he did, it was to pass it on to the poor in another city or because he was working in a new unreached area where there were no churches. But the assumption in the New Testament is where there are churches present, they are paying local leaders or they're funding missionaries like Paul into a new unreached area where there is no gospel witness, where there is no church, or they're funding the blessing of the poor maybe in another area. There are no examples, hear me, there are no examples of money being given or tied to the receiving of supernatural gifts, to being healed or to deliverance or to prophecy because of the easy abuse of such supernatural spiritual gifts. Go read Acts chapter 8 with Simon. Peter and the apostles are performing miracles. They're healing people. And Simon says, hey, what do I have to pay so that I can have that power too? And Peter rebukes him, saying that, that's, that's, that's evil. There are no examples of money being given in the New Testament to receive a spiritual gift, to be healed, to have a prophecy, or to have a blessing. There are none. And the very idea of it, the request of it, the, the desire to even pay for it or to be paid for those things, Peter rebuked and said was evil. Next, false teachers will preach wrong, false doctrine, which is called heresy. Heresy. They'll say that to be forgiven of your sin and made right with God, it's Christ plus something, like Christ plus my ministry or my teaching or my book or whatever. You need Jesus plus something else. That's heresy. We believe that the gospel says very clearly, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. There is no Christ plus anything. 
It is Jesus alone who saves us. Uh, Another heresy that you can watch for is someone who tries to undermine the authority of Scripture. That they might promote their own prophecy or word of knowledge or whatever over the word or over the scripture. They might undermine the word in all kinds of different ways, saying that the word of God isn't as authoritative over your life as what the word claims to be. They might diminish the deity of Jesus. They might diminish the humanity of Jesus. They might tell you that they've got some sort of new teaching that's, that's not in the Bible that's been revealed to them by the spirit. That is false teaching. There is no new teaching that we don't find in the Bible that we are to listen to or obey. That's a false teacher. That's false doctrine. Next, this is my favorite, false teachers, false authors, their teaching's just a little fluffy. It may not be heresy, but it's a little fluffy, right? It's like cute, fluffy bunny, very inspirational, very motivational, but not very transformational. Okay. They they, they don't want to talk about sin because that might hurt someone's feelings. They're not going to talk about hell because that doesn't really sound too good to right my my itching ears. That that doesn't, that doesn't sound very good to me. And so their teaching can be a little fluffy and they'll talk a lot about what's in you and you've got this. And I'm thinking that's terrible news because I don't got this. Like, I don't know about you, but, but it's not even inspirational or motivational for me to someone, for someone to tell me, hey, you got this, you can do it. And I'm like, I, I've done nothing but not do it. <laughs> I, I, I don't got this. I, I can't do it. <laughs> right, right. So, so that's, that's awful news to me. Right? What you're telling me is not even inspiring. It's actually terrible news if I've got to got this. Because I don't got this. It's inspirational. It's motivational. They won't use typically a lot of, a lot of scripture. It's a lot of their own ideas and creative thoughts. Sounds good, but it's not orthodox. And then finally, you'll always see a resistance to authority in a false teacher, a resistance to authority. A lot of times they're not plugged into a local community, a local church. Uh, a, a lot of times these, these traveling uh, prophets and apostles and, and, and people like that, they don't have elders that they submit to under, that where they submit them, their ministry and their teaching underneath a, a local elders. And, and so there's a resistance to authority. There's often a scoffing at your desire to test what they're saying or to discern what they're saying. And you'll see them get very defensive that your desire to test or discern what they're saying to see if it's really true according to the word isn't really necessary because of who they are and because of their position. There's a scoffing at authority. Oftentimes they haven't been educated in theology. And if they have, A lot of times it's at an independent school, not accredited, not really accountable, but you'll see a lack of biblical education, oftentimes in a false teacher. So Jesus is being very clear. If it's criminal and it's worthy of having a millstone tied around your neck and thrown into the sea, it's clearly very important for us to watch and to be vigilant about who we follow, who we listen to, who we're taught by, who we read. Life jacket number one, orthodoxy, believing rightly about God. Number two, life jacket number two, orthopraxy. Now this again is a big theological word that means this, behaving rightly. 
Orthodoxy is believing rightly. Orthopraxy is I'm behaving rightly. I'm knowing, I'm growing in my faith. I'm studying the scripture. And this isn't dead orthodoxy. No, as I learn more about God, as I grow in my faith, as I study the scripture, the Holy Spirit is moving in me and transforming me from the inside out, transforming my mind, transforming my heart. And it's transforming who I am. And it transforms the way that I live. It transforms what I care about. It changes the way that I behave. Real orthodoxy always translates into orthopraxy. Behaving rightly, believing rightly by the power of the spirit produces a behaving rightly. And so what does Jesus say? Look with me, watch your own life, pay attention to yourself. Make sure that your life is matching up with what you believe. Make sure there's a consistency in who you are in every circumstance, in every situation, right? In every context. Make sure there's a consistency there and that your orthopraxy, the way that you're behaving is lining up with orthodoxy, what you believe. So watch your life. But then he says this, this is interesting. He says, watch your own life. And then what's next? Look, watch your brother's life. Uh Uh-oh, this is about to get awkward. Jesus says, if your brother, if your sister's in sin, you got to go Point it out. You got to watch your brother or sister's life. And if they're living in sin, you're to go point it out. That's weird, right? That's, that's, it is. Let's just admit it. And I know some of you are like, wait a second. I thought, I thought we weren't supposed to judge. Like, didn't Jesus say not to judge? Listen, brother, sister, you need to go back and read the rest of Matthew seven and the rest of Luke chapter six, where Jesus says not to judge. There's a lot more there than you think. Jesus goes on to say in both of those chapters, hey, uh, take the plank out of your own eye first, like repent of your sin. Take the plank out of your own eye first. And then he says this, and then you will see well enough to help your brother or sister with a speck of sawdust in their eye. And in Matthew chapter 18, Jesus says, go to your brother who sinned or sinned against you, go to them and point it out. Go to them and and point it out out. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians 5, we're we're not supposed to judge those outside of the church, but then he says this, but we are supposed to judge those inside the church. Like those of us who claim to be followers of Jesus should expect to be confronted over the way that we're living by other followers of Jesus. Paul said, we do judge those inside the church. Like Jesus said, we, we, we tank the plank out of our own eye, but then we, we go help our brother or sister with the speck of sawdust in their own eye. And we see that here in, in Luke chapter 17. Examine yourself, watch yourself first. And then secondly, you gotta, you gotta watch your brother. You gotta watch your sister to make sure they are behaving rightly. And if they're not, if they're living in sin or if they're believing wrongly, then you gotta go and point it out. And this is huge. This is so important to get this order right. Because if we're watching ourselves first, if we're taking the plank out of our own eye first, it it gives us this, this tender, gracious, merciful heart and attitude and spirit when we approach someone else, which makes all the difference in the world. And so here's what we've said around here for years when we see passages like this throughout the New Testament. Here's what we've said. If 
If your heart isn't broken over your own sin, don't approach people about theirs. That's the, the model, that's the order that we see in the New Testament. Your heart must be broken over your own sin, over the plank that's in your eye, so that then you can go and help your brother or sister who's caught in sin or with a speck of sawdust in their own eye. And I, and I know some people would say this, and, and our culture's saying this, but, but, but if you were a real friend, you would just support me whatever decision I make. And every parent in the room is like, What? Are you joking me? No. Every parent understands that they love their child. In fact, every parent would say, man, I would give up my life for my child, but I definitely don't agree and support everything my child says and does, right? I mean, I promise you, if you're not there yet, you will be. Your child's gonna say something to you and you're gonna go from the spirit to the flesh in 0.2 seconds, I promise you, okay? I promise you, you're not going to agree with every single thing your child says and does. You love them with all of your heart. You would give up your own life for them. But that doesn't mean that you support them in every decision they make. Our culture says, if you love me, if you were really a friend, you would support me in my decisions. And, and what, what they're doing when someone says that, what our culture is doing in buying into this lie is is mixing up. It's getting the greatest commandments that Jesus, it's getting them out of order. It's saying, I'm going to love my neighbor first, and then I can, I'm going to love God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. Now, Jesus said the first commandment is you're going to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And out of the overflow of loving God and believing rightly about God, then I can love my neighbor in a godly way. I can't love my neighbor in a godly way if I'm not first and foremost loving Jesus with all of my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so like Jesus, we practice transformational love. Parents practice transformational love, not affirmational love. And, and so like Jesus, we say, brother, sister, son, daughter, whatever it is, I love you, I care for you, I want what's best for you, but like Jesus, Go and sin no more. That's transformational love. It's not affirmational love. It's transformational love because there's a right way and a wrong way to believe and there's a right way and a wrong, wrong way to live that's not up to you or me. It's a standard that's outside of ourselves and as we love God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, we can then be good neighbors. This is real Christian community. It takes time, it takes trust, it takes vulnerability, it takes invitation in our culture today where you invite this into your life. Brother, sister, I, I need you to watch your life and to watch my life too. And, and, and this is, our, this is our, our, our prayer for the city church. We, we may not be there yet. Some of, some of us are there, some, some of us aren't. But, but, but my prayer and what I'm going to challenge you into, because I believe Jesus is challenging us into the, is relationships that look like this, where this is possible, where what Jesus is saying is possible, where I'm watching my own life and I'm watching yours and you're watching your own life first and then you're watching mine. And together we're growing in our orthopraxy, behaving 
rightly. This is real Christian community. One theologian said it like this, a mark of the discipleship community is the responsibility that disciples have to help each other remove the speck of sin from each other's lives. But it must come from a humble and self-examined life that has removed the plank of self-righteous judgment. Then restoration can occur with the right attitude. After self-criticism takes place, relationships are based on redemptive empathy rather than condemning detachment. Another theologian said this about this Christian, this kind of Christian community. God intends Christian behavior to be reinforced and upheld by the friendship, company, teaching, counseling, and loving criticism of other Christians. That might be a little jarring, right? Not to appreciate this is to lapse into that arrogant independence of one's fellow human beings, worse, one's fellow Christians, which is a sign not of this new life, but of the old life. This is what we're going for. Most people in our country today, in the church, that most are not getting here. They attend, they don't really belong, people don't really know them, they don't really know other people, they just don't ever get here. And that's dangerous because it's a life jacket. Third, third life jacket is humility. The third life jacket is humility. Jesus tells this picture. He gives us this picture of this mulberry tree being uprooted and cast into the sea and like replanted. And in black mulberries in the east, they've grown for 600 years. They've got this extensive root system where a hurricane or a tornado might strip it bare, but it could never uproot it. And so to uproot and plant a mulberry tree again would be impossible. And Jesus' followers in his day, they, they knew this. They understood what Jesus was saying, that this picture of a mulberry tree being uprooted and thrown into the sea, it was, it was impossible. And so what Jesus is saying here is that these kinds of relationships, that, that, that ministry, that, that even forgiveness, it's impossible. And so it's only going to happen by faith as we trust in God and as we trust his best for our life. By faith means that this mustard seed of faith to uproot this this tree and to replant it or to throw it in the sea. To do this, it, it requires something impossible that can only happen by even just a mustard seed of faith. And, and this, this humility, this faith says that I, I can't do this. I, I, I'm weak. I, I, can't, I can't do this. I, I need help. That's humility expressed with faith. This is impossible for me, but God, nothing's impossible for you. That's humility. Jesus' closing parable reveals that it's faith and humility, two sides to the same coin, that makes this possible. That it takes Humility to say, I'm not going to make up stuff about God. I, I'm not going to have my own opinions and best guesses about God because he's revealed himself. It, it takes humility to, to say, like Jeremiah, my heart is wicked above all else. I can't trust it. It takes humility to say, like Paul in Romans 1, I, left to myself, I think up foolish thoughts about God. That takes humility to say, I, I'm just going to submit myself to Jesus and his word because I don't got this. 
And so I'm submitting myself to Jesus and to his word. It takes humility to approach your brother or sister about their sin and to win them back. That that inherently means your, your approach is being done with a great deal of grace and mercy and patience, humility. It takes humility to forgive. Jesus says, every time someone repents, you got to forgive them? Are you joking? That's why the disciples are like, wait a second. Jesus, I've got to forgive every time someone repents of their sin. I got to forgive? That's why they're like, you're going to have to increase our faith. It's their way of saying, uh, you're going to have to help me with that because I can't do that. That takes humility to forgive someone who's wronged us over and over and over again. Now, now we're not talking about necessarily restoration of relationship or continuing to put yourself in a dangerous place. That's not necessarily what we're talking about. But what we are talking about is, is forgiveness that comes from a place of knowing that I've been forgiven. I've been forgiven of my sin and I sinned against God, eternally holy and righteous. I sinned against him. You see, sometimes in our pride, We'll, we'll, we'll harbor unforgiveness and bitterness because we would say, man, I don't know how you could do that. I would never do that. But humility says, no, I, I have done that and I've done worse actually because I did it to God. I offended God and he forgave me. And so according to the parable Jesus closes with it, it's like my duty as a servant of Christ to forgive because I've been forgiven. It takes humility to say, I've done nothing to deserve the grace of God. I've done nothing to deserve the forgiveness of God. And yet God forgave me. And so out of the overflow of that, I'm going to forgive. It's, it's my duty to forgive because I've been Forgiven. This parable that Jesus closes with about this servant just doing his job, just doing his duty, it just it reveals that our commitment to orthodoxy, believing rightly, orthopraxy, behaving rightly, and humility. This is just basic level discipleship. This is our duty as servants of Christ. But but it's not some white knuckle kind of duty where I'm gonna do better and I'm gonna try harder and I promise I'm gonna do it from this day forth. That's not what this is. This is a Holy Spirit given desire. It's a Holy Spirit empowered kind of effort to commit myself to believing rightly, behaving rightly into humility. It's the Holy Spirit that that stirs in up a passion for the word of God, to to believe rightly about God, for, for right doctrine. It's the Holy Spirit that leads us and moves us into obedience and that gives us humility. And so my question for you this morning is this. Are you wearing your life jacket? Are you wearing your life jacket? Like, I've taken some really hard falls wakeboarding. And especially since I passed 40, it's like the, hard, the, the falls are much harder. Like, I fall and it's like concussion every single time. And pain and suffering for days, right? And, and so I, I've, I've learned... I, I got to wear a life jacket if I'm going to wakeboard, especially at 40 plus. Like I I know how to swim, but those falls are so horrendous that if I'm not wearing a life jacket, I'm going to sink. I'm going to drown. You got to have your life jacket on that keeps you from drowning. And so to sink and not swim together, we've got to put on our life jackets of orthodoxy, orthopraxy, humility. 
And so three groups of people I want to challenge this morning. Number one, if you are desiring spiritual leadership ministry, pastoral ministry, you've got to take the time to get a good education. It's important. That's why Paul said, we don't elevate recent converts. They've got to take time to grow in their faith, to get educated, to be tested, to be tried, to get some experience in smaller environments and situation to allow their character to grow. And so if you're desiring pastoral ministry, spiritual leadership in any kind of way, in any ministry, you got to you got to put in the time. You got to get that life jacket of orthodoxy, orthopraxy, humility. That takes time. It takes experience. It's not something you rush into. Second group are husbands, dads, parents. Scripture's clear that dads, husbands, we've been given a spiritual leadership role in our families that, that we will be held accountable for the spiritual direction of our families. And so if you're a husband, if you're a dad, this is really more applicable to you, but, it, but it's applicable to all husbands and wives and parents. Are, are you leading your family in the right direction? Jesus says specifically about these false teachers that if you lead a little one astray, that, that's like a, a child, could be someone young in their faith, but it also gives us the idea of children that you will be accountable for the way that you've led your family, for the way that you've spiritually led your kids. And so the, the question for dads, husbands, parents, are, are you committed to getting your kids in their life jacket? Are, are you committed to making sure your, your kids have their, their, their life jackets on? How are you leading your family to believe rightly about God, to, to behave rightly, to, to, to live in humility, or like a false teacher, are you leading your family away from the things that are most important? Are you tempting your family into sin? Because you're not focused on the primary things. You're leading your family into secondary things when you should be leading your family to put their life jacket on into primary things. Or are you leading your family into secondary things, into, into sin, away from Christ? And then finally, Christian, are you in an unhealthy relationship with the church? And by unhealthy, what I mean is, is like you have this consumeristic relationship where all you take, where all you do is take from the church. This text is definitely a rebuke of private independent, consumeristic, shallow, lone ranger, uncommitted faith, our growth in orthodoxy, orthopraxy, humility is a communal pursuit. It's not something you can do on your own. And so Jesus says, temptation to sin's gonna come. So what, what do we do? The devil's waging a war for your heart, your soul, your, your mind, for your kids. What, what, what are we gonna do? We gotta go to battle. I can't go to battle on my own. I gotta go into battle with some brothers and some sisters who can go to battle with me against our enemy, against our flesh, against our apathy, against our idols, our sin, our selfishness, our, our comfort, our lies, the, our, our bitterness, 
We gotta go to battle together for orthodoxy, for orthopraxy, and for humility. Would you pray with me? Just every head bowed, every eye closed. There's some of you here and you're you're believing wrongly about how to have a relationship with God. We've all behaved wrongly. We've all behaved wrongly. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We've all behaved wrongly, but but some of us are believing wrongly about how to have a relationship with God and go to heaven when we die. You're, You're trying to do better and try harder your way into the kingdom, into a relationship with God. And that is believing wrongly about how to have a relationship with God. Romans 10 verse nine says, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you give your life to him and you believe in your heart that Jesus died for you and you rose again. Romans 10, nine says, you will be saved. And so this morning, if you're doing better and trying harder, thinking that if your good deeds are gonna outweigh your bad deeds, maybe somehow God will let you into his heaven, that's believing wrongly. Today, I wanna challenge you to believe rightly, to give your life to Jesus, that you might be saved from your sin through his paying of your fine on the cross for breaking God's law. And through his resurrection from the grave, you can be confident that you will go to heaven when you die because of what Jesus has done for you, not because of what you could do for yourself. And so believing rightly as I'm giving my life to Jesus, Christ alone, and by my faith alone, in Christ alone, my sin will be forgiven, I'll be made right with God. If that's you and you wanna give your life to Jesus and believe rightly about having a relationship with him for the very first time, jump on our app, fill out our form, connect form, and let us know that you're giving your life to Jesus today. Holy Spirit, as we sing, would you stir up an affection for your word? Would you stir up an affection for orthodoxy, for believing rightly about God? Would you stir up an affection for orthopraxy, for believe, for behaving rightly, for, for, for obedience motivated and driven by our love for Jesus? Like Jesus said, if you love me, you're gonna obey what I command. You're gonna behave rightly because of your love for me. And Holy Spirit, would you stir up a humility in us that says, I, I don't got this. And these things haven't really been evident in my life. And Holy Spirit, I'm gonna need you to come and ignite, maybe reignite some fire and passion in my heart that's, that's left. I, I, I don't got this. And so God, I, I need you to do something supernatural in me by the power of your spirit that I can't do for myself. Holy Spirit, ignite a fire, a passion in us for these things. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand?